Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust, today with a message entitled, Look for Grace-Centeredness. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When I say that in order to determine whether one's listening to Bible teaching one can trust, one ought to look for grace-centeredness, I mean that a vision of the grace of God is always the goal of all faithful Bible teaching. When Bible teaching is grace-centered, it's most often faithful to the teachings of the Bible. So let's start by defining grace and then let's ask and answer if the Bible really is a book of grace at all and then finally, Let's see how the message of grace not only transforms all of life, does, but let's make it particular. Grace transforms relationships. Decision-making grace transforms hardships and disappointments. And grace is the prism through which we see God. So let's start by defining grace. Martin Luther, in a written response to the great humanist scholar Erasmus, in his work entitled The Bondage of the Will, Luther wrote, grace is the hinge on which all turns. And then he went on to say that if our faith is generated from within, that is, if we produce faith from self-exertion or by any action of the human will, then we claim credit for our faith. We can then say, it was I who believed. In that case, we would receive credit for faith. I did it. But Luther said he wasn't content to stop with the words, we're saved by faith alone. No, no, said Luther. We're not saved by faith alone. We must add We're saved by faith alone through grace alone. It was grace that brought me to faith. So let's get back to our definition of grace. What is it? You know, we might argue that grace is undeserved merit. That might sound complicated, but let's start with the word merit. You know, merit is something of worth or something of value. You know, something has been given, something that is, as Jesus puts it, a great treasure hidden in a field. So let's add the word undeserved. Something has now been given to us that we didn't produce, we didn't create, we didn't deserve, we didn't earn. But what is this treasure? I suppose on a grand scale, we would have to say the treasure is the favor or the kindness or the mercy of God. God has chosen to treat us in a way that wasn't deserved. That's called grace. God's kindness expressed in love towards the undeserving. Okay, having said that, let's move to the next item. Is the Bible actually a book about grace? And I say that because I remember some of my early lessons from Sunday school. And if you went to Sunday school, you no doubt learned your Bible stories right there. You know, perhaps in my own childlike brain, I just didn't get how these stories had anything at all to do with grace. Yeah, Noah was righteous. That's why he wasn't drowned with the rest of the human race. So the life lesson, dare to be righteous when everyone else is turning out to be unrighteous. And then there's Abraham, the man of faith, and I should learn like him to be a man of faith. And and Joseph didn't compromise regardless of the cost, so God blessed him, and, and that's how I should be. Then God would bless me as well. And Moses was a leader, and I should learn to be a leader. And Joshua was courageous, and I should start to fight the Lord's battles as well. And, and Ruth left Moab and found shelter under the wings of the God of Israel, and I should do that just like her. And, and David, well, he met Goliath with courage on the battlefield, and with faith and courage, I too could slay the Goliaths in my life. And furthermore, I should dare to be a Daniel. 
and dare to stand alone and dare to have a perfect cause and dare to make it known. And and Esther saved her people. Maybe it's possible that God might call me to save people as well. And, you know, there are so many things the great men and women of the past did. And, And if I could only learn from them, well, I could fight and reign and conquer and care for and love and be just like them. But another thing is also important. I was not to sell my soul for a bowl of stew like Esau or fail to obey like King Saul or or move into Sodom like Lot. And when all the characters of the Bible are reduced to life lessons we should learn from, see, I can't even for the life of me imagine how these stories can be of grace. How so? You know, furthermore, I I couldn't imagine how the Ten Commandments had anything to do with grace, and maybe you can't either. You know, for instance, consider Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That is, don't do this, for God's going to remember, and he will find you guilty. By the way, let me interject a thought here. I mean, to all of you who say, well, now, I'm so glad Jesus died for my sin, and now I'm no longer under the law. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true, but let me ask you a question. For you, does that mean that now that you're under grace, that that you can take the Lord's name in vain, or you can have other gods, or you can commit adultery, or you're allowed to steal now? I mean, after all, it's all grace, and none of that stuff counts anymore. I'm not under the law. Ain't grace so great? Well, quite frankly, any faithful reading of the Bible makes it plain that such an attitude is simply not on. You might consider the very famous Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? See, let's see if I can put Romans 6, 1 and 2 in my own words. Now that we know that we're saved by grace, now that we know that God has forgiven our sins on the basis of his kindness and mercy and not on the basis of anything that we've done, Now that we know that we weren't worthy of the gift of eternal life and that salvation was given to us by nothing that we have done, but what God has done through Jesus, what then? Since it was all grace, are we then to take a cavalier attitude to God's commands and say, well now, since keeping the commands don't save me, since only grace saves me, then it really doesn't matter if I keep the commands or not. You know, to just such thinking, Paul responds and he says, by no means. You know, the actual Greek wording is meganoito. You know, it's a hard phrase to translate, so, you know, really get the sense of it. It would be like saying, fat chance, or not on your life, or ain't going to happen that way. Are you out of your mind? Who do you think you're kidding? That's what Paul is saying. Do you think that grace is license that allows you to live as you want without regard to sin? No, no, he says, not so. Instead, grace caused you to die to sin. Well, stop again, because here again, many Christians don't understand sin. You see, if we don't understand sin, we don't understand grace. What do we mean when we say sin? Now, a great many people have pointed out that the word sin means to miss the mark. It's to fall short of that which we're aiming at. And so, you know, we say things like, well, none of us is perfect, or, you know, we tried our best, or we just came up short. We were aiming at the best. We just missed. We're not bad people. We just fell short, but we really, really tried. It's not the definition of sin. Yep, sin does mean that we fail to hit the target, but that might not be saying much yet if we don't know what the target is. 
1 John 3 verse 4 gives a very succinct and very easy to understand definition of sin. It simply says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, that means that sin is violating God's law, but it goes far beyond that. Sin is to disregard the law. You know, so what is the target that we've missed or that we've not hit? You know, the mark or the target, that's the perfect law of God. And so if you've been saved by grace, you've been saved from the rightful justice that should have awaited you in consequence of violating the law of the Creator. Now, let's get back to my statement that so much of the reading of the Bible doesn't sound like grace. In the days of Noah, God responds to to rebellion by sending a universal flood. In number 16, I mean, we read about Korah's rebellion against God. So the ground opens up, everyone falls into the earth and dies. That's followed by a plague on all who followed the rebels. That's how God treats rebellion. For Samuel 15, Saul refuses to obey out of anxiety, out of fear that his men might abandon him. And suddenly he's rejected as king. I mean, the book of Lamentations is the story about what God does when his chosen people refuse to repent. And it's not just in the Old Testament, is it? Hananias and Sapphira sin by lying to the Holy Spirit and immediately they fall dead. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And Jesus the one who brought the grace of God to us said, it's recorded in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, if anyone teaches the Bible, they're going to have to be honest about all these verses. It's not that these kind of warnings and these demands for faithfulness are found in but a few odd places here and there. The Bible majors on this stuff and to fail to say it is to fail to be faithful to the Bible. But I've said that Bible teaching you can trust is Bible teaching that centers on grace. Well, how can that be so? Have you been considering joining us for the 2021 Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience? Well, after much consideration and prayer, the ministry has decided that we'll be postponing our next Israel experience to 2022. You'll understand why with so much uncertainty in our world right now. The exciting news is that those who have been nervous or reluctant to jump on board have a new window of opportunity. Join us in Israel April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, and consider adding to your experience our extension to Jordan May 2nd to May 7th, 2022. This will definitely be a journey of a lifetime. Register soon because even though the date is a little ways away, the space is limited. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. really are those who say that if you teach that you must be obedient. That's really just legalism. I mean, I I hear this charge so often, you, you really have to wonder which Bible they've been reading. 
See, the Bible is clear that we must persevere. We must be faithful to the end in order to be saved. So again, I ask, where is the grace in all of that? If grace is a free gift of favor or of blessing or of salvation and of God's love given to those who don't deserve it, I mean, how can we possibly see that in the whole Bible when at least from the vantage point of some, it's so hard to see? So let's start with the law. Paul has something very important to say about the law, why God gave the law in the first place. And it turns out God never gave the law or any of the commands in order to show us how to get saved. You know, listen to Paul's analysis in Romans chapter 7, verse 7b. He says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So the law, indeed, all the commands of God, well, they're intended as a highliner or as a doctor's diagnostic instrument. Let me explain. When you're studying perhaps a book or some article, you might use a highliner. It highlights especially important parts of the book that you're determined never to forget. That's what the law does. It's a highliner added to your sin. You thought it was just cheating. The law called it adultery. You thought you were just getting your fair share. The law called it stealing. You thought it was feelings of inadequacy when others had things you so desperately wanted, and the law called it coveting. You know, the law actually shows you who you are. You're a rebel. You're a lawbreaker. It highlights that in such a way that you're now forced to learn this about yourself. And also, the law serves very much like a doctor's diagnostic tool. You know, perhaps it's a biopsy or an MRI or an ECG or a colonoscopy or, or even a blood test. See, all of these tests help a doctor diagnose what you have. And we might protest well now. You know, the diagnostic test doesn't actually heal me. I mean, how then can there be any value in it? Well, you already know that there can be no healing until the disease is understood. We should read the law and the commands and be genuinely disturbed by what we find there. It is the diagnosis of our spiritual condition. But here's the key to understanding all grace. The law does not come with the power to heal you or to change you or to take away your death sentence. For that, you need grace. The law only condemns. And so trying to obtain favor with God through keeping the law, that's a fool's errand. Let's go to the very famous passage, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I hope you heard all the diagnostic language there dead in sins, following the world, following Satan, following the desires of your flesh. You're by nature a child of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. It's quite a diagnosis. It's like going to the doctor and hearing him say, look, we've run a battery of tests. The cancer has spread to all the major organs. It's just too pervasive to begin treatment. All we can say is put your house in order. You have three months. It's shocking and grim. You should read Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 and the rest of the commands of God through that very lens. 
It should shock you. It should be hard-hitting. You, you should feel the blood drain from your face as you become white. It's the final verdict. And please don't run to quack doctors who say that, you know, we've got a wonderful vitamin treatment for you, or there's a meditation group out there, and they can fill you with happy thoughts. It'll turn back the disease. Listen, it's far too late for that. Any Bible teacher who doesn't paint this picture of our condition is a quack. It's simple as that. So now let's read the very next verse in Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Ah, that's, that's grace. That's the very first word that begins the language of grace. It's the word but. It was the late Martin Lloyd-Jones who called this but the mightiest adversative in human history. You might be hopeless, but, and here we sit at the edge of our seat, but what? But God, ah yeah, God. He's the one who created the world out of nothing. He's the one who calls things into being that don't yet exist, and even more, he's the one who raises the dead, but God, ah yes, but God will intervene. Notice, but God being rich in mercy, and I love the image of rich in mercy in our day. You know, when we think of the rich, we, we think of those who are rich in money, you know, the billionaires who look around them and realize there's nothing out there that they can't buy. There's no financial shortfall for anything. Well, of course, God is creator and owner, and his wealth is incalculable. But here the wealth of God is displayed in the one who is rich in what? Mercy. I love what Wayne Grudem defines the word mercy. He says, mercy is God's goodness to those in misery. See, that is, to extend mercy, it's to end misery. It's to end suffering. Paul says, God is rich in this commodity. There's no shortage of that in him. And then grace is not goodness for those who are suffering, but grace is goodness to those who don't deserve mercy at all. It's mercy extended when to extend it is completely unwarranted. Let's keep reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, isn't that the heart of the gospel? Yes, it is. God saved us by grace so that in the eternal ages to come, he's going to put us on display, on a display case that showcases his immeasurable riches of grace. You're destined to be a, a trophy in God's showcase, the trophy of grace. That's the gospel. Jesus came into this world not because we deserved it, but in spite of the fact that we definitely, most definitely, didn't deserve him. He suffered on the cross for our sins, and his sacrificial death has satisfied the justice of God. It has satisfied the demands of the law. He suffered for us, and we received his reward. We didn't earn that, and we certainly didn't deserve that. That's why in the very next verse, Ephesians will say, it is by grace that you have been saved. Let me for a moment get back to those images I used about, you know, learning to be faithful like Joseph and learning to be brave and courageous like David and, and fighting the giants Goliath in our lives and learning to be daring like Daniel and willing to stand alone. I mean, truth be told, I've failed in each one of those examples. 
But here's the glorious truth of the gospel. I wasn't faithful like Joseph, but God has sent a greater Joseph, Jesus. He was faithful, and he saved me from my faithlessness. I was unable to defeat Goliath on the battlefield. He was just way too tough and way too ominous. But God sent a greater David. His name is Jesus, and he has killed the giant on my behalf. I didn't stand alone like Daniel, but the greater Daniel, who is Jesus, did stand alone and was thrown into the den of hateful men who crucified him on my behalf. You know, suddenly now, as I read through the entire Bible, yeah, I do see my own sin, and I'm deeply grieved at the picture I have received of it. But for every one look at my own sin, the Bible invites me to take 10 looks at the cross and to see grace and mercy and kindness and a rich outpouring of the mercy of God. You know, if Bible teaching you're hearing doesn't keep leading you back to grace, back to grace, to the goodness of God, to the forgiveness of God, to the power of God, that to become the faithful man or woman you now so desperately want to be, it's not possible except but God, by his grace, will give you the power to do even that. If it's not about grace, it's not about Bible teaching you can trust. You know, and finally, I did promise that I would help you to see how grace transforms every relationship. Paul in 1 Corinthians asks a question. He asks, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. Humility sees all God's gifts as grace gifts. We earned or deserved nothing. We have no gripe with God. All we are left with is profound thankfulness and faith and confidence that God is always gracious. And whenever we hear that message, that's good Bible teaching. Thanks, John. Let me ask you this, you know, is it possible to to teach the Bible and to even want to be faithful to it, but still end up with a gospel of works, similar to what the Pharisees ended up with? Yeah, it sure is. Um, I think that it is possible to misunderstand. For instance, it's easy to misunderstand the law and not see any grace and to see it simply as a standard to see how well I'm doing. But when we do that, of course, we misinterpret the Bible. So I'm going to say that whenever we steer away from grace, we're misinterpreting it. But it's easy to do that, and it's easy to end up with a legalistic or what we might call works-centered righteousness. That is, I am earning my salvation. This is ungodly. Thanks, John. That helps. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. During the month of August, we'll be unveiling a slightly new visual look for the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. This change came as a result of a deep search into a a 60-plus year legacy of ministry and a determination to continue our commitment to offering trustworthy Bible teaching. To celebrate the past and embrace the future of Bible teaching, Dr. Neufeld will be airing a brand new five-message series entitled Bible Teaching You Can Trust. This is a biblical study of the key elements that indicate the Bible teaching you're listening to is trustworthy. This will air on this radio station, online, podcast, and in our mobile app. But we also want to offer you the series on CD as our gift for free. All you need to do is call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And if Bible teaching you can trust is something you value, 
perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift of support. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust.